In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man uh, whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Well, I'm looking forward uh, to today and beginning what will be just a two-week little series leading up to Christmas Day as we consider and we reflect upon the, the Christmas story. Now, a few weeks ago, there was an event that happened in Boston. Uh, Prince William and Princess Kate of Great Britain were in Boston. They were here visiting the States. And when they were there, they went to a game, an NBA basketball game, that was played by the Boston Celtics. And so they took in this basketball game. Here's a picture of them. They're sitting courtside uh, watching the game. Don't know how much they understood. Don't know that they played too much basketball there in Great Britain. But they were there. And uh, after the game, there was a really interesting exchange that happened at the press conference. You know, because after an NBA game, they all do a press conference with the coaches and with the players. And the coach of the Boston Celtics, a man by the name of Joe Mazzula, he was taking questions. And they said, hey, we have one, one final question from a reporter. And uh, the reporter spoke up and asked Coach Missoula the question. Um, she said to Missoula, um, did you have time to meet with the royal family? And just as serious and straight-faced as he could be, Coach Missoula looked at her kind of with a furrowed brow, and, and he said, Jesus, Mary, and Joseph? And of course, that's exactly what happened. The, the, the room kind of, everybody sort of chuckled and the, recorder was, the reporter was a little bit caught off guard and, and she says, no, 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 you know, Prince William and Princess Kate, they were here at the game and I wondered if you had the opportunity to engage with them. And this is what he said. He said, oh no, I did not. I'm only familiar with one royal family. I don't know too much about that one. And I, lo and I loved that. I just, I loved the moment that that coach took to identify that there is really only one royal family, if you will. There's only one true king of kings and lord of lords, and his name is Jesus. Now, I don't know biblically if we can call Mary and Joseph uh, royalty, but what we can call them is the parents of the king. They were the earthly parents of Jesus, the king of kings and lord of lords, whose birth we celebrate this time of year. In fact, we're doing what the church worldwide is engaged in doing, taking time in the church calendar to reflect on the coming of Jesus Christ to earth. Because even as Pastor Jason mentioned earlier, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ is tied inextricably, as we're going to see this morning, to 
Jesus Christ's birth here on earth. In fact, to understand the resurrection requires a proper understanding of what took place at his birth. And so today we're going to do this by looking at the parents of the king. This week we're going to look at Mary. Next week we're going to look at Joseph. We're going to look at their encounters with the angel leading up to the birth of Jesus Christ. And we're going to ponder together. What do we learn? What do we ascertain about Christ from these interactions as we learn about his earthly parents, Mary and Joseph. So, if you have your Bibles, I would invite you to open them up to Luke chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, there's a Bible on the um, racks in front of you, and I hope that you're ready to learn and ready to grow because we have a lot of ground to cover this morning. I was reflecting actually as I studied this week in Luke chapter 1 that in all my years of ministry here and all the messages I've preached, I've never actually done what we're going to do today, and that is to actually look verse by verse at Mary's encounter with the angel, but it starts, at least the text that we're looking at this morning, in Luke chapter 1, verse 26. Let me read it for us as we get into it. It says these words, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. The story of Jesus' birth, as recorded by Luke, begins with the angel's encounter with Jesus' earthly mother, Mary. Now, when we pull back this time of year and consider the birth of Jesus, one of the things that I, I love about reflecting upon the Christmas story is the rich theology that we're reminded of as we come to the story. Like something that I think we often pass over too quickly is the proclamation that God sent an angel to speak to Mary. Why is that so significant? What does that confront us with? One of the things that that confronts us with is the reality that the physical, natural universe as you and I know it isn't all there is. In the story of Jesus' birth and Mary's encounter with the angel, we are being confronted with the fact that there is a supernatural, there is a spiritual realm. The angel comes from God to Mary and, and appears. I mean, just... Think about that for a moment. No matter the scientific achievements that we accomplish as humanity, no matter how great our technology advances, no matter how much knowledge we accumulate looking at the things of the physical world, when we read this about an angel coming to Mary, it should humble us. It should humble us because it reveals that as human beings, we only and forever until heaven will know part of the story. No matter how great we think we are, no matter how much knowledge we accumulate, there is a whole other realm that exists in which this angel comes from, in which the rest of the scriptures speak to, that you and I don't even perceive or ever engage in. I mean, just think about how humbling that is. No matter how much knowledge we accumulate, no matter how great we think our discoveries are, there's a whole other aspect, a whole other realm in which God reigns and rules, including over our universe, but we are basically totally unaware until 
it breaks in upon us. Like just studying that this week, just thinking about an angel coming, we're like, oh, God sent an angel to, no, like that's remarkable. I should be humbled. You should be humbled at this idea. You know, but one of the things about the angel coming to Mary is also the fact that the supernatural is real and it does exist. And one of the things that people have attempted to do throughout every generation is, is, is take those parts of the Bible that, that don't contain the spiritual or the supernatural. And yet, here we have Luke. Here we will see Matthew next week. They proclaim the reality of angelic beings as being just that, as fact. They don't try and hide it. In and around the birth of Jesus are these supernatural events. And the Bible says, the rest of the New Testament authors say, like, that's part of our faith. But notice, notice what happens here as we come back to the story. The angel comes to Gabriel, and there's something that is, or the, the angel Gabriel comes to Mary, and it says this. It says that when he came to her, he went, it says, to where? He went to the region of Galilee, to the city of what? Nazareth. Now, I find this so interesting because when he comes to Mary, Luke does something in the text. He tells us that Mary is from Nazareth. But the way that he tells us that Mary is from Nazareth is very revealing because it tells us first and foremost that Luke is very concerned with making sure that the readers of this gospel account know the exact place where Jesus came from. You know why I say that? Because he doesn't just say that the angel came from God to Mary in Nazareth. It says that the angel came from God to Galilee, to the city of Nazareth. The reason why Luke says it that way is the same reason why I tell people when they ask where I'm from, I'm from San Diego and I don't say Valley Center. <laughs> because people don't know where Valley Center is. They have an idea where San Diego is. Now, if I said I was from San Diego and actually from a smaller city there in San Diego from Valley Center, they would have a good chance of trying to locate it on a map. Luke knew that when he wrote this, that if he just said that Mary was from Nazareth, Nazareth was such a small podunk out of the way town that it wouldn't have tracked on, on any of their maps. In fact, here's a picture I want to show you. This is uh, a picture of where the cities were in Jesus' day, and they're pretty much the same. I've actually been to, to Nazareth. You see Jerusalem and Bethlehem down below. Nazareth is kind of tucked up in a hill. It's off any kind of significant major uh, trade route. So it's a small podunk town. But what does Luke do? Luke says, I want you to know that Nazareth was in Galilee. And this is something you find throughout the gospel accounts. These little details where the authors of the accounts of Jesus' life go out of their way to put in pieces of information that create great specificity to Jesus' story. If you were making a story up about Jesus, you wouldn't want people to explore it any more than what you've already said. Instead, Luke is inviting you. The gospel authors, they invite us to dig deeper. He says, I want you to know exactly where the city is. Why would he want us to know where it's at? Because he'd want people to challenge it. He'd want people to explore it. I love this about the New Testament. I love this about the gospel accounts. It, it doesn't present these things as fiction or as maybe these things happen. It says, no, these are facts. These are real people. They lived in real places, even a place as small and insignificant as Nazareth. And so what do we learn about Mary, the earthly parent of Jesus? Well, she lived in Nazareth. And so what does that tell us about her? She was just a small town girl living in a lonely world. 
Oh, sinners, you should know that song. No, I'm kidding. She, she is that. She's a girl from an insignificant town. She would not have anticipated her life really having any influence in the broader world. In fact, we learn more about her than just simply she was a girl from a small town. It goes on to say this about her, that she was a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph. Now, the information here that she was a virgin serves kind of two purposes. But like the first purpose, as we'll see, is because it's going to point to the absolutely supernatural event of Jesus' birth and how it comes about. Like that's going to be significant. We're going to get to that in a moment. But in the immediate context, the, the idea that she is a virgin is important because, listen, to be a virgin meant that she had not had sex with a man. And so we know that that was true of, of Mary, what's being told. But, but it's more than that. You see, times were different way back then than they are today. You see, you did not have sexual relations with somebody outside of marriage. I'm not saying that people didn't. They did. But it was virtually an unheard of thing. The only people that engaged in sex were those who were married. Literally across the board, that was the way things were. You could be punished for, for not or for doing so. And so when he calls her a virgin, what he's saying to us is something really kind of profound. People in Mary's day, if they only had sex when they got married, people who got married got married as soon as they possibly could, which means that Mary, by calling her a virgin, it's telling us that she was somewhere between 13 and probably 16 years of age. Earlier in the service, the young woman who was reading the scripture was my oldest daughter, Elle, and she's 17. And she ain't getting married this year, all right? That ain't just anything happening. I'm sorry. Like, it's just not, you know? And yet, so there was this woman, Mary, younger than my daughter, preparing to be married to this man named Joseph, a girl from an inconsequential town going to be married to a man. And she, she's young She's 13, 14, 15, 16. And so this information about her being a, a virgin is, is intended to, to let us know of, of just like her age, her youth, her, her season in life. But then notice it says that she was betrothed to Joseph. Now, what does that ultimately mean? We don't have betrothal too much today. In Jesus' time, there was only basically singleness and marriage. And the only thing that happened in between was this thing called betrothal where a guy would come to the family of a woman that he wanted to marry, and he would go to the father, and he would say, I'd like to marry your daughter. And the father would say, that's fine. How much are you willing to pay? Now, I like that. I have three daughters. I'm thinking about my retirement here, you know? So, so any young man that would come, I'm like, great, you want to marry? How much am I getting? But that's no, seriously what they would do. How much would you pay? And the man and the, and the father would agree to a price, they would pay that cost, that price at that time, and there would be a, a, a formal public arrangement and proclamation that this young man would now be marrying this young woman, but it wouldn't happen right away, and that would be the betrothal period. And so if you're taking notes, just I gave this to you. To be betrothed meant that someone was not yet married and living together, but they were legally bound to the groom and referred to as the wife. And this period of betrothal could last up to a year as the man would establish his home and eventually then have the formal wedding ceremony and they'd come together as husband and wife. And so this is Mary's situation. She is legally bound to this guy, Joseph. 
people would refer to Mary as Joseph's wife, even though they were not yet living together. Young girl from a town of little to no consequence, engaging in just the regular cultural practices of that day, I can guarantee you that she was not anticipating that her life would be anything other than what she had seen in her mother's life or in her aunt's life. Her life would just unfold as a regular course. The only thing of significance potentially about her husband-to-be was that he was from the line of David. He's from the line of David. Her husband-to-be could trace his family lineage all the way back to King David. Now, really, that was just a fun fact. It didn't mean anything in that day. The line of the kings of Israel had been broken. The guy who was currently king of Israel at that time, King Herod, he was an imposter. And so it was kind of an interesting fact to be from the line of David, but it didn't carry any prestige or any wealth or any power. What it did mean, though, was that any child that would be born to Joseph and Mary would ultimately be considered also of the line of David. So this is who Mary is. This is the parent of the king. One final thing that we can say about her, it's not right here in the verses we heard read, but it's in verses 46 through 56, is that Mary, we know, was religious. I, you could also say that she was a, a, def, a devout Jewish follower of that faith. And we know this because when you read in verses 46 through 56, don't have time to get into it today, Mary sings a song in response to everything that we're going to hear the angel say to her. And her song of response to what the angel said to her is filled with references to the Old Testament, filled with Old Testament references and allusions, things that she could only know if she had been taught the word, if she had listened and paid attention during all the ceremonies, during all the rituals that the people of God participated in as a a Jew. And I think that's going to be important because... What the angel has to say to her requires some knowledge of God's promises in the Old Testament. So Mary, the mother of Jesus, small town girl, like any other of that day, following the anticipated and unexpected courses that life would take her. But then look at verse 28. Look what happens. As she's just living her life, it says, And he, the angel Gabriel, came to Mary and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. This girl living her life, we don't know when and we don't know where exactly, has an angel appear to her. Gabriel comes to her, sent from God. And the very first thing that he says to her, did you notice, was this. She is favored and the Lord is with her. Now, why does he call her favored? We got to be careful, church, that we don't think that by him calling her favor, he's saying, Mary, you're God's favorite. That's not what he's saying. He's not coming in and saying, Mary, out of all the young girls in Israel, there's something special about you. God wants you for something special because you're special. No, to call her favored, as he's going to do again in verse 30, when it says, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. What's being referred to is this, is that Mary is a recipient of God's blessing. She's favored in the sense that God is going to do something for her that when people then look at her, when she even considers her own life, she'll consider herself blessed. It's not as though she's God's favorite. It's not as though she did something. There's nowhere in the New Testament writings 
that we can find where Mary is singled out and that she is given the opportunity to be the, the mother of God incarnate because there was something righteous or special about her. She is following in the footsteps of, of all of what God has done in the past, like what God did with Abraham when he chose Abraham, when he chose Jacob, when he chose David, when he chose the prophets. They were blessed because God had selected them, not because there was something special about them. You know, when I was uh, probably about seven, maybe eight, for those of you who've been around the church for a while, you might remember I referenced this in the past. When I was about seven or eight, I got to go to the, uh, the Bozo show. Do you guys remember Bozo the Clown? Like, all right, now you'll have nightmares. Okay, here's Bozo. He was big in the Midwest. He had a sidekick named Cookie. And if you were a kid of my age, the Bozo show was like, you loved it. You loved the show. I was talking with Pastor Tony. He, was in, he had lived in Chicago, and he liked the Bozo show during the winter because it would na- announce the school closures with snow, and so you always hoped your school was announced. But I loved the Bozo show because kids got prizes. And one day, I got to go to the Bozo show with my dad and my brother, and the climax of the Bozo show was the grand prize game where one child in the audience would be selected at random to come down and to play a game where you would throw a ping pong ball into buckets in a line. And the more buckets you threw the ping pong balls into, the bigger and greater prizes you received. Oh man. The day came and my brother and I, we just knew this was at random. And we just sat there hoping and praying that we would be one of the children selected to throw those ping pong balls into the buckets. We practiced at home. My dad set up a little course because we wanted to get as many prizes as possible. And then the day came. And they announced they were going to do the grand prize game. And they panned the camera all crazy trying to find the person. And sure enough, it settled on a kid three seats down from me. <laughs> and in that moment, I felt what every other kid felt, both disappointment and awe. That child was favored. <laughs> that child was blessed. We looked at that child and we said, you have the opportunity to do this. That child was picked at, at random, unless the guy paid off. I don't know. No, but he was picked at random. I want you to know that God in his plans and in his purposes, when he calls Mary favorite, is saying, I have chosen you. You're blessed because now what you're about to receive. And what is it that he's about to receive? Friends, look at it. Verse 29. But she was greatly troubled at the same. At what same? Blessed are you. You're favored and God is with you. And she tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. You know, I think about Mary, I'm like, is there any other way to read that comment? Like, if I come to you and I say, hey, you're favored, God is with you, like, that would seem to be a positive thing, right? But this girl, she's never seen an angel appear out of nowhere, right? Like, it's unsettling to have somebody surprise you, and yet, to have an angel come, you can tell that she's a little bit distracted. She doesn't fully take in what the angel has said. I was reminded how we can be distracted and not necessarily paying attention to things when the other day there was a video of a young man who took his girlfriend to a baseball game. And when they were at the baseball game, he had arranged with the stadium that during the baseball game, on the jumbotron, when they did the dance camera, that's where they panned the camera into the crowd and then you know, people are supposed to dance when it falls on you. He arranged that when the dance camera came about, it would land on them, and then he would propose to his girlfriend while the dance camera was on them. And sure enough, in the middle of the game, they show this video, the dance camera, it's jumping from person to person, and it lands on this guy and his girlfriend. 
And she gets up and she's so excited and she starts dancing and he's dancing for a second and then he comes behind her and he gets down on one knee. And she's looking at, she is looking at a screen the size of that wall up there and bigger than this screen and, and she sees herself dancing and the words pop up on the screen. Will you marry me? And he's in the shot on one knee directly behind her. And she goes on dancing for like 30 more seconds. You feel awkward watching it. It feels uncomfortable. Finally, somebody that's not a part of their party taps her on the shoulder and points to the screen. And then she does the classic, oh, and she turns around. Like I thought about that the moment that I saw this where Mary says that she couldn't discern what it was that he was saying. She's so taken back by the moment. And then what does God do? In his kindness and his grace, Gabriel doesn't go, Ugh, okay, all right. No, look at what he does. And the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. He repeats himself. He tells her that there's no need to be afraid. You found favor with God. He repeats the fact that she is someone who's about to be the, the recipient of a great blessing. And in my imagination, I often wondered for Gabriel and other angels that God had sent to communicate messages to his people. I wondered if they ever got tired of people just always being afraid of them. <laughs> like I wonder after maybe the third or fourth encounter we see in the scripture, the angels went to God and they said, you know what? We appreciate the opportunity to give your messages to these people, but could we like ease them into it? Could we like knock on the door or something? Like we just appear and then they freak out. Like I just, I, I just, in my curiosity, or they like, this is so much fun. Check out Gabriel. He's doing it again, right? Watch this, watch this. But we don't get any sense of that. Instead, he comes and he communicates the message. And then he comes and he speaks to why she is going to be favored. Look at verse 31. Behold, he says, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son and you shall call his name, what church? Jesus. Now, if this was all that the angel said, or just even think about Mary hearing what the angel says up to this point. Mary knew that she was going to be married to Joseph. And I'm sure in her mind, she's like, yeah, we're planning on having kids. That's what everybody does. I, I think she might have felt like, wow, this is a little bit of overkill. Why is God coming to me and telling me I'm going to have a son? Like, we were probably hoping that that would happen. I, I mean, I guess it's good to know. You know, they didn't have ultrasounds back then. You know, it's like, this is nice. Even the fact that the angel tells Mary to name the child Jesus. Like, that name could have been on her top 10 list as far as names to name a boy. Did you know that? Jesus is just the derivative of the Hebrew name Joshua. It means deliverer. In fact, you do know that Jesus wasn't the only man named Jesus living when Jesus lived. Let me try saying that one more time. Did you know that Jesus wasn't the only man named Jesus living when Jesus lived? That was a very common name even back then. And so he, up to this point, doesn't tell her anything really too exceptional, but then, but then it changes. Look at verse 32. He will be, this child Jesus that you will have, he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Church, it's at this point 
that both we and Mary are being told the significance of this child. We're being told not only of his identity, but also of his purpose. In fact, that very first thing that Gabriel says about the baby to be born to Mary is that he will be what? Great. Don't skip past that. Like you might think, you know, oh yeah, sure, he's, he's going to be great. You know, all kids are great. I think my kids are great. That's not what the angel's saying. That designation of Jesus that he will be great is actually in contrast to a message that Gabriel had just delivered to Mary's cousin Elizabeth earlier in chapter 1. You see, earlier in chapter 1, Gabriel's already come down to give a message. Before he gives the message to Mary, he gave a message to Zechariah and to Elizabeth. And he told these two parents that they too would have a child that would come to them by the work of God, but it would come to, to them through their sexual union. And he said that this child, who we would know as John the Baptist, it says that he too would be great. But check this out. It says that he would be great before the Lord. A modifier. He's going to be great, but he's going to be great before the Lord. Jesus, though, no modifier. It's just simply said that Jesus will be great. And when you see that in the Greek here, what that is pointing back to is that in the Old Testament and in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, whenever the word great was used to describe someone without a modifier, guess who it was only used of? God. It was only used of God. And so what Gabriel is saying, he's not just saying it's like, you know, your kid's great, their kid's great. He's saying, no, you have Jesus and everybody else. He is preeminent is what Gabriel's saying. Paul would pick up on this. The rest of the New Testament authors would pick up on this. When you go to Colossians chapter one, I just want you to listen here really briefly to how Paul understood this. Speaking of Jesus, in verse 15 of chapter 1, he is, Jesus, the, the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He's before all things, and in him all things hold together. What does it mean for Jesus to be great? It means that he is the preeminent one. And then the angel gets even more specific about the greatness of Jesus. How he is the great one, for it says in verse 32, he will be great and he will be called the son of the most high. Now, let's see if you're as smart as the first hour here. Are you ready? Who church is the most high? We're in a church here. This isn't a trick question. Who is the most high? God is. God is the most high. There is none above him. So when the angel Gabriel says that Jesus will be the son of the most high, he's really telling us that Jesus will be the son of what? God himself. Now there's that famous song, Mary, did you know? Mary, did you know that your baby boy would be this, would be that? As we read these words, as, as Gabriel's speaking to Mary, church, we can't fully know what Mary comprehended in the moment. 
Based upon the song that she sings, we know that she comprehended a lot. We don't know if she fully understood the magnitude of the fact that her son would be the son of God, but it doesn't matter what Mary understood because the rest of the scriptures make clear that for Jesus to be the son of God, indeed he fully was, fully God and fully man. To call him the son of God meant that Mary would give birth to God incarnate, fully God, fully man. Whoever you think Jesus is, you cannot deny what the scriptures say. They do not present him as just a man who became adopted as God's son. The scriptures proclaim, Gabriel here is the first to say this child is God himself. And Jesus, well, check this out. Look over at chapter two. You don't have to go that far. Jesus, in Luke chapter 2, in verse 49, when he's a young boy, he goes with his parents to Jerusalem to worship. It's one of the only stories we have of Jesus' early life. And when he goes to Jerusalem, he gets left there by his parents. Any of you ever left a child somewhere and forgot about them? Don't raise your hands. We don't want to know. <clears throat> if you're a child, you're like, I was left. Jesus was left. So he can sympathize with your weakness if you were ever left behind. But notice what it says. When they finally found Jesus in verse 49, he said to them, Mary and Joseph, he said, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? Jesus fully understood himself to be God's son, even at an early age, the embracing of this. Church, what we have proclaimed here to us is Jesus' true identity. John would say that the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have behold his glory, glory as the only son of the father full of grace and truth. This is who Jesus Christ is. You can't have him any other way. But if Jesus being the son of God is a proclamation of his identity, what the angel Gabriel says next is a proclamation of Jesus' purpose and what Jesus came to do. Do you see it there? He says, and the Lord God will give him, that is Jesus, the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. If there was any doubt that there would be a supernatural element to who Jesus Christ was, it's cemented in this proclamation that he will sit on David's throne, and church, how long will he sit on David's throne? How long will he reign according to this? forever. Who could only reign forever? No mere mortal could fulfill that role. Only God could do it. And when Mary heard this, this would have been meant something profoundly more to her than it necessarily means to us because God had promised King David that from his line would one day come one who would bring about righteousness and justice, one who would deliver the people of God and in doing so would establish his reign and his rule. And in his reign and his rule, the people of God would know his peace and they would know God's presence amongst them forever. And so the people of God would be secure. The promise that the son that was being born to Mary would be the Davidic king was Mary hearing that God was fulfilling his promise. He was bringing lasting salvation through this son for God's people. In fact, 
God spoke through the prophet Isaiah about this child in Isaiah 9, 6 through 7. It's a scripture that we read during the Christmas season because it applies directly to what we see here. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and uphold it with justice, with righteousness, from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Who was the baby to be born to Mary? Jesus is the promised king. The promised king, the fulfillment. I can't imagine that Mary could even take all of this in. Yes, I'm to name my son Jesus, but he will be God's son. He will be God in the flesh and he will fulfill the role of redeeming and rescuing and establishing God's kingdom. And so there will be, as it says, peace between God and man through this child. We know that Mary understood some form of this because in the song that she sings, she says in verse 47, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. Mary understood that the coming of this child meant salvation for the people of God. But church, was she, uh, was she easily believing all of these things? Was this something that, that she fully comprehended? Look at verse 34. Look at what it says. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be? since I am a virgin. Now, I don't know that we've thought long and hard enough about what she's actually asking, because Mary's not stupid. <laughs> Mary's not dumb. Mary's not coming and saying, how can I have children? I I'm a virgin. That's not what she's saying. When she says, how will this be because I'm a virgin? As I said earlier, she knows that the only way that a person gave birth to a child was by having a sexual union with a man. And the man that she was planning on having that with was none other than this guy, Joseph. And so her real question to the angel is, I'm betrothed to Joseph. Are you telling me that this guy is gonna be the husband of this child? Is this how this is gonna, is it gonna come about through our union together? I mean, because the child is gonna be the son of God, the promised king of David. She's trying to make sense of this. And what does God do? He comes and he graciously explains how all this will come about. And I can guarantee you it was something that Mary was not expecting or even thought was possible. Look at verse 35. And the angel answered her and said, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Mary, this promised king, this Son of God, it won't come through your union with Joseph. What will come about is something that has never been seen, experienced before or since. You will conceive 
not between the sexual union of a man and a woman, nor between the sexual union of God and a woman, but by the Holy Spirit coming upon your womb and so that the child that you will give birth to will be none other than the Son of God. It won't come about by a natural biological process. This will be a supernatural work of God. We've seen God do supernatural things in the past in allowing women to give birth, but that was God opening the womb. That was God using the regular biological means to bring about the procreation of an individual. Zechariah and Elizabeth are an example. Abraham and Sarah are an example. But this child? Look at what we read of it in Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. This is one of the things as it pertains to Jesus' life that people have always struggled with. That throughout history, people have struggled with the idea of the virgin birth, like, like this supernatural outside of any regular means that Jesus Christ came into existence. But church, I find it fascinating. I find it spectacular that the beginning of Jesus' life and the end of Jesus' life here on earth both involved supernatural, extraordinary events that have never been repeated. The birth by a virgin, the resurrection from the dead into new life, Jesus' life begins and it ends here on earth with those things that could only be made possible by God. And some people have asked, well, is the virgin birth really that important? Like, do we have to believe it? Like, is it really that significant? Here's what I would just tell you. To deny the virgin birth is to deny what the scriptures clearly teach. And so if you don't believe this part of the Bible and what it says, then you have to ask yourself the question, what other parts of the Bible don't I have to believe if I don't like them, if I can't explain them? God continues to refuse to be wrapped up into a nice little package that our human minds can perfectly grasp and mold and, and take care of. Instead, God comes even in his birth and says, I am something other. I am something exceptional. And God knows that Mary's going to struggle a little bit with that. And so he brings her comfort right away. Look at verse 36. And behold, your relative, he says, Elizabeth, in her old age, has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who has been called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. Mary, just in case you're struggling, just in case you can't conceive of this actually taking place, already God has worked a miracle in Elizabeth. And what was Mary's response to all this, church? Look at verse 38. And Mary said, Behold, I am a servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. I want to close with that scripture because I want us to tie it all together and to how this actually applies to us right here and now. You take a woman like Mary, born in a small podunk town, nothing exceptional about her life, nothing exceptional about her experiences, and yet God comes to her with this profound word, this word of his coming this word of his entering into this world to fulfill all of his promises. And when Mary heard that word, what was her response? She believed. She literally says, 
I am the servant of the Lord. Full submission. That's what it meant. What you have said, I receive. What you have said, I believe. What you have said, I will accept and walk in. You know, as we rehearsed this morning, this story, as we looked at the elements both of who Mary was and her encounter with the angel, church, I know that this message first came to Mary, but today, on December 11th, the same words are being spoken to us. Do you know that Jesus is the Son of God? Do you know that he is preeminent and overall? Do you know that he and he alone is the king that has brought righteousness and justice and salvation for the lost? Put yourself in Mary's shoes. That was the message she heard. That's the message we heard. My question for your heart today is, what's your response? Do you hear those words and do you say with Mary, I am a servant of the Lord? I will believe and walk in and follow your word as truth. If one does not hear these words and accept what the Lord has said and believe them, then there is no offer, there is no hope of salvation and peace with God. But for those of us who hear and once again receive these words and believe who Jesus was and what the purpose of his coming meant, then we too go forward with Mary and we can say today these words, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For you and I to know Christ today as the angel proclaimed him to Mary is to be a person who has been blessed for God has come. He is our king. He is our rescuer. And he's above all. And so let us praise him. Let me pray. Lord, it is unnatural for us. It's unnatural in our sin and our rebellion to desire to proclaim what Mary has proclaimed. That, Lord, we are your servants. We submit to you and we believe your word to be true. But, Lord, you have offered to us and you have extended to us that which breaks through the sinful nature, your grace and your mercy, that allows us to be able to come and in, and in light of your word to receive it. And so, Lord, may our hearts bask in it. May our hearts receive Christ as you truly are the great one, the one who's preeminent above all, which means that, Lord, there's nothing more for us to live for than for you. To know you as the Son of God and because you are that you bring us into relationship with the Father. To know you as the King who reigns, that our hearts would be able to embrace that righteousness and justice comes not from our doing, but from you. And so, Lord, help us to walk then in that belief and in those truths, Lord, because they are the only thing that bring the comfort for our souls, the hope and help that we need for the day today. And Lord, for any here that don't know Christ in that way, 
Oh, Father, may they hear the extended invitation to come and to believe in you, Christ, who came to save. And it's in your name that we pray. All God's people said, amen and amen.